Welcome back, guys. Once again, this is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This podcast is also hosted on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. Both of these ministries are for God's people to help equip and strengthen your confidence in the Word of God, to help you understand and live out a God-honoring life, a life that, uh, that sees Christ as King over every sphere of, uh, of reality. And I would encourage you to check out uh, both of those ministries for way more resources um, to help you uh, help assist you in your, uh, your life and in your ministry. That's the Ezra Institute at ezrainstitute.ca and then rebelalliancemedia.com. We're, uh, we're proud to be uh, found in both those places. You can find us uh, on the podcast wherever fine podcasts are got. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, it would be a great uh, help and a blessing to us and help get, uh, get this content to more people. If you would leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, again, wherever you get your podcasts, go there and uh, tell others if you enjoy it. For today's episode, uh, I've got Wesley Huff as my guest. Wes is a friend of, uh, of mine. He's a friend of the ministry. He's been, uh, we've been traveling in the same circles for a couple of years now. Wes is uh, completing a PhD in uh, textual criticism in the, in the New Testament at, uh, at the University of Toronto. And we sat down to talk about issues of textual canon and canonicity you're, if you don't know what that is, you're going to want to listen up and, uh, and follow along. These are important questions. We talk about apocryphal literature, stuff that some people uh, tried to get into the canon, but which, uh, which doesn't belong there. And he talks about uh, what's at stake. What's at stake not only for the text of Scripture, but what's at stake for all of reality and for the Christian world and life view if we abandon the idea of canon. So if you're listening to this on your commute, maybe, uh, maybe you're on a bus or on a subway, you're going to want to take some notes. If you're driving, listen up tight. Wes is going to share the, uh, the crucial distinction between a canon text and a canon ball, among other things. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Ryan Aris, and we're here at the Worldview Leadership Camp. And with me is, uh, is my friend and a friend of the Institute, Wesley Huff. And Wes is a, uh, a New Testament scholar with a special focus on uh, textual criticism and the, uh, the authority of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, and the definition of Scripture. And we're here today to, uh, to talk with Wes, wanted to sit down and talk about canon and canonicity. Wes, welcome to the, uh, the program. Welcome to the Institute. Yeah, thanks so much, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you can make it. Uh, did I miss anything in your bio? What else do you do? Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm doing my, my doctoral studies at Wycliffe College at That's, the University yeah. of Toronto yeah. um, in the area of, um, it's, it's text criticism more broadly, but I, I study the, the transmission of the New Testament text mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how the, um, the culture of manuscript production in the first few centuries was uh, affected in the ancient world. So I, I focus on, you know, mainly Christian texts uh, within the realm of, of New Testament documents, but touch on uh, some other 
historical documents within antiquity, um, as well as some of um, some of the apocryphal texts, some of the things we're going to talk about today. Perfect. That's uh, that's great. Well, we're uh, really pleased to have you here. Um, let's uh, let's start off uh, not assuming too much about uh, well about me or about uh, anybody who might be listening or watching. Uh, when we what, when we talk about the canon of scripture, what's meant by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a word that uh, we we may hear from time to time in different contexts. You, you hear say the, the canon of um, Star Wars, the Star Wars canon, or the Marvel canon. You know, mm-hmm. there is an idea in pop culture of what this idea of canon means, and really, it's just a it's just a word that means rule or list. Okay. Um, in terms of a, a standard set of a particular documents, particular um, literature or, or movies or whatever. Uh, so uh, a typical rule is canon with one N is a rule or list. Canon with two Ns goes boom. Cool. So yep. you, okay. you have, I when we're know. talking about the canon, um, we're talking about, and in particular to the biblical canon, a rule of list of books that we refer to as Christian scripture. Okay, so uh, it's like what's in, what's out. Yeah, more or less. And I, I think it, it's sort of, um, you have, you know, the definitions of, say, heresy and orthodoxy. And, right. and similarly, you have the definitions of uh, what's canonical and uh, what's apocryphal, what's not in that canon. And uh, what is, is, yeah, I guess in one way, um, what's not in, uh, although that's often misconstrued in, in the popular media. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think we uh, often it's it's made it sound like there was a vote somewhere, okay, uh, or like you know these books uh, made it. And even the other day, I saw uh, on Twitter someone had had tweeted uh, you know the the top ten books that didn't get into the Bible didn't make the cut. <laughs> didn't make the cut. Yeah, and I think but it's, there there's I mean the the Council of Nicaea. Uh, effectively sealed the canon of scripture, isn't that right? Um, uh, yes and no. In, in one sense, the, the Council of Nicaea uh, doesn't actually talk about what the canon is, although it sources it authoritatively. Okay. So it's around that time that you sort of start to get the, the these are the 27 books of the New Testament stamp. But in reality, you have a long history going really right back to the beginning of the, the second century of a recognition that there are certain books that hold an authority that, that are from, from God. Um, in, in fact, there's a, there's a guy named um, Theophilus of Antioch, and uh, he has one writing that we have, and he's, um, he's a second century apologist, and he's writing to this guy named um, uh, Otto, Autolycus, uh, and he's writing to Autolycus, and he's uh, trying to basically prove to him that the Gospels have just as much authority as the Old Testament writings. And so this is um, around 170 to 180 AD, and he says, concerning the righteousness which the law enjoined, confirmatory utterances are found both with the prophets and in the Gospels, because they all spoke inspired by one Spirit of God. And so even from the second century, there's still this attitude of what scripture is in terms of what we would now call the New Testament. And then that's recognized later on at the Council of Nicaea. Okay, so it's a, uh, it was an acknowledgement mm-hmm. uh, more than a, a sort of de- declarative, declarative stamp on, on something. 
Yeah, and I think um, in, in the pop culture world, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea gets a lot of credit for things that I think they would be surprised mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that they have anything to do with at all. <laughs> you know, the deity of Christ and uh, the New Testament canon and uh, certain doctrines. And um, in reality, it's sort of, it's an easy marker to pinpoint um, because it was a big event. And so it's easy to create conspiracy theories around it and say, you know, these certain things happen. But when you actually look at what was happening at the Council of Nicaea, as important as it was, uh, it had nothing to do with stamping the deity of Jesus on Jesus or uh, officially choosing certain books over other books. So you mentioned uh, mentioned the apocryphal material and how that's another category of of uh, stuff, um, what's, uh, what's the sifting process or what's the discernment process for understanding uh, or acknowledging this is, uh, this is a canonical work and something else is apocryphal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was, I mean, in one way, if you were to go back in time to the second century and say, find a second century Christian and say, hey, why did you choose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do yeah. you choose the epistles of Paul? I think they would actually look at you a little bit strangely and say something to the effect of, you know, choose. <laughs> we didn't choose anything. You know, these were, the, these were the documents, these were the books that were handed down to us from the apostles. And in terms of the discussion of, of canon, um, it's often framed historically, and I think that that's important. But there's a, there's a long history, especially in the Jewish tradition, of covenantal documents and covenantal promises followed up by written text. And so you even see this in, in Moses is told to, to write these things down, um, as is um, Isaiah and some of the minor prophets. They're told to write this on a scroll, write, you know, and put this on a tablet. And there's always been this understanding within um, the, the, the Jewish culture that the covenant, the promises of God are followed up by written text. And so when you get to the, the New Testament, the new covenant, um, I think just as rightly, you have the early Christians uh, saying, you know, we have this new covenant and it's followed up with written text. I think that would have been organic. I think that would have come directly from the tradition of them. And so with that, you have um, authentic documents that are written by the apostles. But then you also have these other ones that start to pop up, um, which we refer to as apocryphal texts. And once again, apocryphal just meaning anything outside of the canon. Mm-hmm. And so this is sometimes you hear on the media uh, about the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Thomas, yeah. or you know, they've discovered a lost gospel. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Didn't, uh, like, didn't Dan Brown make a career out of uh, this kind of material? Yeah, he did, yeah. Um, at least bought a house off of it. Oh, definitely. I think might have bought uh, two houses yeah. off of it. Um, and it's, it's very sensationalized. But I always think it's interesting that you, you see these headlines, you hear these headlines, and then all of a sudden all of this stuff just fades away and you never hear it about it again. Because in reality, when you get into these texts, when you get into their historical validity or their content, they don't hold water as being authentic. Um, on what uh, on what basis? What are some of the uh, what are some of the tests for authenticity? Like, 
consistency with other sort of more reliable or more widely acknowledged um, texts? Or Yeah, so that's part of it. I mean, if... As I said before, there wasn't really a a choosing um, period, you know, if you went to that first, right, that second right. century Christian. But at the same time, when you have numbers of texts floating around the ancient world, and they are trying to figure out and do due diligence to try to um, say, you know, this is authentic, this came from the apostles, there was a set of criteria um, granted. And uh, the main one of those criteria was apostolicity. Can we trace it to an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? That was arguably the biggest one. Okay. And frankly, a lot of these documents that we see written about, a Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, um, Gospel of the Hebrews, Gospel of Truth, they're written about by the early Christians. They're ne- the, the title of being lost is sort of a misnomer. They were never lost. Mm-hmm. Um, we've known about them for a long time. Okay. Um, but... When I, that sort of has a, a stamp of um, um, mystery on it, if you say it was a lost Yeah, gospel. yeah, it's like the suppressed gospel. Mm-hmm, yeah, that was hidden or something. Yeah, the um, red-headed stepchild of gospel writings. Right, yeah, living in the attic. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a... Um, and so what you see with some of these, every time they're mentioned by, um, by some of these early Christian writers... They're condemned for a number of reasons, but chief of which saying, this doesn't come from an apostle. Uh, it's popping up at a time when um, the apostles are dead. So things like plagiarism. Now plagiarism is I take your stuff and I put my name on it. But in the ancient world, I mean, it looked very different. It was I take my stuff and I put your name on it. Because let's be honest, nobody's going to read the Gospel of Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, I've been shopping it for a while. You know, you yeah, hasn't picked up? Ah, oh, too bad. Maybe next year. But um, <laughs> but everybody knows who Peter is. Mm-hmm. Because Peter, I mean, he's one of the he's one of the head honchos, right? Or Thomas, or uh, you know, these characters have an air about them, especially within the the Christian communities. These are the guys. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if I can write a gospel and I can pass it off as as having the title of Peter being its author, well, then that gives it credibility. But the reality is that anytime we see these things, they're, they're tested by the early church saying, can we trace it back to an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? Mm-hmm. Which is why you have, say, uh, Mark was not an, uh, an immediate disciple of Jesus. Yeah. Um, but the tradition is from some of these early church fathers is that uh, he gets his stuff from Peter directly. Mm-hmm. And so that passes the test. And so apostolicity is the main one. The, this, the other two would be um, orthodoxy. Does it contain right teaching that we know from the churches that were established by apostles? Does it contain those teachings? And then catholicity. Um, so orthodoxy, nothing to do with the Greek Orthodox Church, and Catholicity, nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church, but simply orthodoxy, um, orthos meaning uh, right, and doxa in, uh, in its syntactical range meaning teaching. And similarly, um, the catholicos, uh, meaning kata, concerning, and holos, the whole, concerning the whole, the universal church. Right. Do these contain orthodox teachings, right teachings, and are they recognized by the body of, of the church? And so that is unanimously for um, the documents that we know as the New Testament. 
And these other writings, they just would not um, pass the litmus test. Mm -hmm. And some of them actually even got close. Um, okay. There's one document, it's not, they're never gospels. <laughs> they're okay. often the ones okay. you don't hear about in the media because they're not as sensational. But there's, there's a writing called The Shepherd of Hermes. Mm -hmm. And it's a, an apocalypse, similar to the apocalypse of John. Right. Um, Revelation. Uh, but we have uh, some early writings. Um, there's uh, a document called a Miratorium Fragment, which the date is debated, but it's uh, estimated at about 175 AD. And the Miratorium Fragment talks about the Shepherd of Hermes. And it specifically says, we know who Hermes is, and he's too late to be uh, an apostle or someone who knew an apostle. In fact, it says that his brother was sitting as the Bishop of Rome at the time. Hmm. Um, so they're like, mm -hmm. we know who Hermes is. <laughs> right. So this isn't scripture because it doesn't pass the litmus test, even though it may be orthodox in its teaching yep. and may even be accepted, but it doesn't pass that criteria. But it's not apostolic. Exactly. And that was the clincher um, because the, the apostles spoke for Jesus. Yeah. That was the recognized idea is that these were people who had an authority. Um, and you see that in Paul's writing. Uh, he, he holds a level of authority uh, for yeah. Jesus speaking. Mm -hmm. And like Peter refer, Peter puts Paul's writings on par with scripture. That's like, right, with yeah. With the Old Testament scriptures, that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so you see, even though there's no like definitive uh, vote somewhere of what books are in and what books are yeah. not, the early church still wrestles with the process of how can we be sure? How can we be as, as honest with what we have to call it scripture? And they don't put that stamp on it. Um, they rightly recognize what is scripture. They don't give the authority to it. It has authority that they recognize. And I think that's, that's key to understand is that um, there's a recognition of what was passed down, not a giving of, of the status that it has. So you brought up plagiarism a while ago, plagiarism then and now, and how it, uh, it kind of worked in reverse mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in those, uh, those times. But in either case, like, that's a, that's a deliberate offense. What, uh, why would somebody be wanting to try to pass off their, their writing as legitimate authoritative scripture? Yeah, there are a few different reasons. You do have, after the... Uh, the death of Christ and the spread of Christianity throughout the ancient world, you do have some groups popping up who sort of meld some of the religious views of the day with Christianity. Uh, so uh, a key example of this is the, a group called the, the, the Docetists, mm -hmm. um, which they get their name from the Greek word dokane, which means to seem or to appear. And that was really taking a, a platonic dualism that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad, uh, and applying it to Christianity. And so, actually in the ancient world, very few people had a reservation about Jesus being God. Nowadays, we're, we're trying to convince people Jesus is God. In the ancient world, they had, no, they had no qualms about Jesus being God. In fact, they believed that if Jesus was God, then he needed to be a super God. And so the Docetics said, well, if Jesus is God, he can't be physical. Right. Because the physical is bad. Why on earth would, 
God take on human flesh. Mm-hmm. And you see... Mm-hmm. A step down. Exactly. And you see echoes of this in, in John's epistles when he says, you know, anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, they yeah. are of the Antichrist. Yeah. And so I think he's, um, he's, he's seeing that either that's happening or that that could happen with the ideas of Platonism in the ancient world and this idea of uh, physical dualism. And so they try to marry those things. And so one of the best examples of this is the Docetic Gospel of Peter. And so they have a Jesus who is floating around because he doesn't have a body. Uh, you know that silly poem where you're walking on the beach and yeah, yeah, the there's only one, poem. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. set of footprints because Jesus was carrying you? Yeah. Um, there's a similar story in the Gospel of Peter where Peter and Jesus are walking down the beach and there's only one set of footprints. It's not because Jesus is carrying Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because Jesus isn't actually Jesus, there. Right. He's floating. He's disembodied. Exactly. And Jesus on the cross is rather complacent because it's hard to crucify a, a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he's up there. He's not really feeling pain. And then, um, and yeah, so you have these different different things. The, the Docetists and the Ebionites and the, the Gnostics, they all have their own spiritual presuppositions that they're they're melding with the text and they want to incorporate them into Jesus. And so in order to do that, they validate it with, with gospels, with scriptures. Or another reason why we have some are to fill in the gaps. So um, actually there's good evidence to show that the gospel of Peter that I just mentioned. Is it like Jesus' teen years? Yeah, well, not not that particular. Although I will get I will get a talk about that the the infancy gospels. Um, one of the things that actually shows credibility to the canonical gospels is that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women, mm-hmm. in a culture where uh, the testimony of a woman would not have been seen as as valid as a man. So if you're yep. making this up, I mean, you have the wrong witnesses. Yeah, the Gospel of Peter almost tries to remedy that situation. Hmm. It has all the right people there when the resurrection happens. So it has Pilate and the Roman officials and it has all the Jewish guard and and the the priests Mm. hanging out in a cemetery, which if you know anything about um, Jewish culture, it would never have happened, which shows that the authors of this knew very little about Jewish culture to begin with. But they're all there and it's like the camera is rolling on the resurrection. And Jesus, the stone moves away and Jesus comes out of the tomb and he's a nine foot tall Jesus. His head head is in the clouds and he's flanked by angels. And this is because he's a super God, Jesus. Um, And ironically, the cross comes out behind him. Uh, It doesn't tell you how the cross got in the tomb. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't explain that. And better yet, the cross is prophesying. Oh, wow. Um, So you you really have an image, but it's, there's good evidence to point that this was an apologetic against the accusation of bad witnesses for the resurrection. You know, uh, the women are bad witnesses. And so I know how to remedy that. I'll have all the right people at all the right places and all the right times. Mm-hmm. And so you get that. In terms of what you alluded so to- trying to bolster the the existing gospel witness. Yeah, yeah, better, better image, mm. um, better PR. Yeah. Um, in terms of the infancy gospels, those are interesting too, because we really don't know what was going on with Jesus' childhood. You have a story in Luke about uh, him being at the temple, um, uh, getting uh, left behind by Mary and Joseph. Um, and but between that and his birth, and then after that and his his ministry, um, 
is the public ministry really don't have anything. And a lot of these groups in the ancient world were like, well, what was Jesus doing? Well, let's fill in that gap. And so you have infancy literature. You have literature where, uh, so for example, um, there are stories like Jesus is on the playground uh, with his fellow students and he bumps into a kid and the kid dies. Mm. And Jesus resurrects him and, and then they keep on playing or Jesus is constantly um, in this literature correcting his teachers because, mm. you know, he's the son <laughs> of God. So obviously he yeah. knows about, and they're in just awe of him. Right, um, right. And interestingly enough, the Arab infancy gospel of Thomas has a story about Jesus making clay birds on the Sabbath. And uh, the Jewish officials get mad at him because he's working on the Sabbath. They run off to find Mary and Joseph to scold him. And Jesus breathes on the birds and they turn into real birds and the evidence flies away. Hmm. Well, that story makes its way into the Quran. So one of the stories of Jesus in the Quran is him making birds out of clay and breathing on them and turning them into real birds. And so some of this literature is, is being circulated enough, particularly when we get to say the, the 600s, where um, Muhammad starts to come on the scene. Uh, this sort of mythos literature about Jesus uh, is, being, is being spread. So I mean, this is, uh, this, this is all interesting. This is all like the historical and the literary value and merits of, uh, of these texts um, is, uh, is interesting in its own right. But uh, like you're not, uh, you're not going through these studies just to go, huh. Interesting point. <laughs> yeah. Right. How about that? Uh, like, what's uh, you, you talked a little about a little bit about what's at stake here uh, for for the canon for mm-hmm. the understanding of the authoritative word of God and you know, some of some of the implications for for Christians in our day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think time and time again, there's never been a time in history particularly in Christian history, where the authority of the word of God has never been under attack in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that the person of Jesus is relatively popular, even in our day and age. Everyone wants to latch on to Jesus. And um, even if they know nothing about Jesus, he's supposed to be this great, tolerant guy, love everybody, meek and mild Jesus. And... What you see playing out in different areas of society are people latching onto Jesus and fundamentally it's idolatry. It's Jesus holds a level of authority. Well, I want him on my team, so I'm going to make Jesus look like me. And there are various ways that, that this happens. Um, but chief of which is in terms of modern ideologies, whether that's you know postmodernism, uh, secularism, um, even socialism and feminism, there are different forms of latching on to a Jesus that fits within, you know, the socialist Jesus or the feminist Jesus or the uh, postmodern Jesus. And one of the key ways that we see that happening in our society is by cherry picking either the biblical gospels and turning Jesus into something that, I mean, you just doesn't give merit for in the mm-hmm. biblical gospels. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, you, you can do that with the authoritative gospels as well. Yeah, sure. If you want to, you can get... I mean, you, you can know, make an idol out of anything. It's very easy. Definitely. And, and especially a devoid of context, uh, you can make Jesus into a Buddhist. You can make mm-hmm. Jesus into mm-hmm. a, a Hindu guru. You can make Jesus into all sorts of things if you want to. Yeah. 
Um, it's not hard to make Jesus agree with you if if you take the text and put it in a vacuum. Right. Um, and don't put it in the frame of reference of who the historical Jesus really was. But a different way that people have done that is uh, maybe they've realized that that's unfair to the biblical text okay. and you can't push Jesus into that box. If you're going to read the whole of the text, you you mm-hmm. can't honestly do it. Yeah, yeah. Or um, you know, there's there's the Lewisian trilemma of uh, mm-hmm. l- l- lunatic, liar, or lord. Well, right. I think I think in our day and age we see legend, uh, another L mm-hmm. in terms of making Jesus into what I want him to be. Uh, but when you realize you can't do that, one of the ways that we see in our culture and within this preoccupation of uh, sensationalism and maybe conspiracy theory with these quote-unquote discoveries of these lost gospels yeah. is that they do portray a different Jesus. They do. Um, there's a, a BBC documentary that I use in some of my talks when I talk about this subject on university campuses. Uh, that has a little clip where the narrator is saying, you know, if I had read, if I had read the Gospel of Peter, uh, I would have thought Jesus looked like this. And if I read the the Gospel of Mary, I would have thought Jesus looked like this. And if I read, and I mean, he's right. If though that was his Jesus, of course Jesus would look very different. Um, but a, that's not who Jesus was, and and b, it's it's not actually honest with who Jesus is, but we have these discoveries. And so you can take, say, a more feminist Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas. Now, ironically, Mm -hmm. the Gospel of Thomas is one of these ones that's often cited for these different things uh, because it's a weird one because it has, um, uh, it's just a list of sayings. So when we think of a gospel, we think of like birth, life, death, resurrection. But the Gospel of Thomas is a list of 114 sayings. That's it. Okay, just like tweets? Yeah, sure, yeah. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, tweets between Peter and Jesus and Thomas. Um, and literally, the woman who wrote the book on, on uh, Thomas, uh, a Princeton professor named Elaine Pagels. Oh, yeah. Um, she is prolific for trying to make Jesus look kind of feminist by utilizing the Gospel of Thomas. Now, ironically, why I think that fundamentally falls short is that you still have to cherry pick. Um, you still have to pick what you want out of the gospel. Um, and the last line of the Gospel of Thomas uh, is a bit of a, a bit of a funny one. Uh, the last line, Logion 114 of the Gospel of Thomas says this: "Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, talking to Jesus, "Let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life." Jesus said, "I myself shall lead her in order to make her male." so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will, en- will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, wow. Well, that kind of underplays a feminist Jesus, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit of a fly in the ointment. So even then, in some ways you have to cherry pick these, these, even these Jesuses in order to get. But I think what it gives you, or, or at least people in our culture think it gives them, is that they have, they're not mainstream. They're not in, in, you know, that institutionalized, organized religion stuff with that Jesus. You know, they have the true Jesus, um, the one that was suppressed by the church when they chose the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and that's, I mean, it's not historically valid, uh, but you can do that. Idolatry is, is 
easy to do. Yeah. And when we live in a world where um, ide ideologies uh, like um, uh, cultural Marxism or post-modernity post or third-wave feminism, these things are popular and they're in the halls of academia, they're in, they're in the, um, the cultural settings, they're in, uh, involved in politics. And so if you can find places within these quote-unquote suppressed sources, well, not only does it give you fodder, um, but it, uh, it gives you maybe an air of mystique um, that I've heard from some people. Um, and that, but in reality, when held up to any type of microscope, completely falls short. Right. That's, uh, that's helpful, useful, uh, and really eye-opening. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of people uh, who love the Lord Jesus and who read their Bibles and who haven't heard about uh, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know from, from personal experience and from experience of people I know that this kind of like, oh, well, have you heard about the Gospel of Thomas? It's this kind of like, it mm -hmm. comes in and it has the potential to, you know, knock you on your side. It's like, oh, is, like, is the Bible actually not as, not as coherent, not as uh, fixed as... I've believed all my life. Yeah. What uh, What do you how, What do you counsel a uh, a Christian who's who might be coming up against something like this for the first time? What's uh, What's What's our confidence in the Word of God? Mm. Um, I guess how how to how to maintain that? Uh, how to account for or stand stand against some of the some of these errors without? necessarily needing to do a PhD on the subject. Right, definitely. Well, let me exemplify that by, by telling a parable, <laughs> or at least a story. So this is a true story. Um, it was, uh, it's about an American platoon in Afghanistan uh, during the war in Afghanistan. And uh, there was an American platoon in the rural area of Afghanistan, and they set up a camp. And almost immediately after they set up a camp, a, a group of Afghanis started firing on them. Day and night, they were firing them. So they hunkered down, but they couldn't for the life of them figure out why they were being fired on. It wasn't the Taliban. It was a group of locals. Um, and so this went on day after day, night after night, where they would just, you know, anytime they stick their head up, uh, they get shot at. And so eventually, uh, the lieutenant in this group uh, put up a white flag or whatever the equivalent was, um, walked over and simply asked, why are you shooting at us? Because we have no idea. And they said, oh, well, it's, it's simple. You're on our land and you're not paying rent. And he said, okay, well, where can we go that, that's not on, on your land? And uh, they said, oh, well, uh, you can go over there. But, but just, to, just so you're aware, there's another group over there and they think that this is their land. And so even if you're here and you're paying rent to us, when we stop shooting you, they'll start shooting you. And so the lieutenant goes, well, where can we go where we're not going to be shot at? Yeah. And literally, he pointed and he said, 180 meters that way. 180 meters. Okay. All they had to do... It's very specific. They picked up their camp, they moved it 180 meters, put down, nobody shot at them. And sometimes I think we get, when we hear these things about any objections to the faith, and particularly in this regard, we think that we have to be, you know, the... Uh, apologetic Bible answer man, or we need right. to, 
you know, have, have all the answers all the time, be this Christian encyclopedia. When in reality, a lot of the time, all we have to do is pick up our camp and move it 180 meters. And in this regard, all we simply have to say is, well, if I wanna know who Jesus is, I'm gonna go to the sources that give me the most accurate picture of who Jesus is. And unanimously, the only writings that come from the time frame of when Jesus lived, the first century, by someone who was either an apostle or knew an apostle, are the 27 books of the New Testament, particularly the fourfold gospel canon. That's all we really have to do. That's picking our camp up and moving it 180 meters. Do you realize that only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come from an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? All of the rest were, had names stamped on them during a time when those people we know were dead. Thomas was dead when the Gospel of Thomas was written. Peter was dead when the Gospel of Peter was written. Mary Magdalene was dead when the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was written. The only documents that come from that time frame are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the rest of the 27 documents of the New Testament. You know, it's helpful to know some of the other things, some of the details, but in reality, that's all we really need to do. Mm. And we need to say, like, if you really want to be honest with who Jesus is, because you need to know who Jesus is, because he's your Lord and Savior, and you're going to meet him one day, and he's going to ask you to give an account. That's a pretty serious thing. But the you're not being honest if you're looking to these other sources for who Jesus is, any more than you're honest um, in trying to find out about Abraham Lincoln and going and watching uh, Abraham Lincoln zombie hunter. Right, yeah. It's not, it's not an accurate picture. Mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous picture. And in fact, if you read these sources, they're ridiculous as well. Just as ridiculous as Abraham Lincoln zombie hunter as it is to the original life of who Abraham Lincoln was. So we, you can get in the weeds if you want to. Um, but like you said, uh, not all of us have the time or the energy or the know-all know about these types of things. Not everybody is going to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And so I think one simple thing we can say is, the A, Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you're going to give an account to him. So you better figure out what that means and how it impacts your life. And B, the only sources that are going to give you an accurate picture of who that Jesus is are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of the 27 books of the New Testament. That's it. That's picking your camp up and moving it 180 meters. That's, uh, that's a real encouragement. And Wes, this has been a great conversation. Thanks a lot for being here. Yeah, you betcha. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.